He's Hacker. So much so that I had to ask around. I'm like, hey, I'm kind of a nice guy, right? Hacker is an ass. I try as I'm getting into my old age at 39 years old. Try not to let things bother me. Just know that I'm ultra soft. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. See Baker Mayfield throw four passes. But, uh, but I get to see this homeless guy return a ball for oh, a touchdown. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Wednesday evening to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, an early edition for us. We're in for Baloo tonight here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark, the Hacker Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us on a Wednesday. We can now turn the page to the Baltimore Ravens as Sunday night football returns to Jacksonville and Baltimore comes in with the best record in the American Football Conference at 10-3 and three on the year. We got a ton to do tonight. Guest lineup looks like this. In less than 20 minutes, my buddy Cecil Shorts, former wide receiver for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He's with us every week here on Hacker After Dark. We'll recap Cleveland. We'll certainly preview Baltimore. And Cecil has some things to get off his chest about the Jaguar wide receiver core. Again, he's a guy that played wide receiver in the NFL for seven years. He's kind of the guy to go to about some of the questions about Calvin Ridley and his effort last week against Cleveland. So we'll talk with Cecil Shorts about that coming up in less than 20 minutes. Also, Matt Verderam of Sports Illustrated, fastly becoming one of my favorite guys nationally to talk to. He doesn't sugarcoat a whole lot. He'll tell you what he thinks. And Matt Verderam of SI.com will join us close to 7 o'clock this evening as we look not only at the Jaguars, but around the AFC South and around the AFC as a whole. So we're with you till 8 o'clock. Glad you're with us here on Hacker After Dark. Every night here on HAD, we do kick it off with a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? No big deal. It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. Oh, what a difference a year makes. 365 little days. 365 days ago, the Jaguars were 5-8, and eight, welcoming in the Dallas Cowboys. And at that point, at 5-8, and eight, the Jaguars were just hoping to stay in playoff contention. Obviously, we know that they went on that great streak ultimately into the playoffs, and then ultimately giving Kansas City all they want in the divisional round. But a year ago, right now, the Jaguars were a 5-8 and eight football team. Two years ago, right now, the Jaguars were the worst team in the National Football League, and three years ago, right now, the Jaguars were also the worst team in the National Football League. So three years ago, they were at the bottom of the barrel. Two years ago, bottom of the barrel. Last year, right now, five and eight. Fast forward to 2023. Eight and five. First place in the AFC South. In clear control of the division when you factor in tiebreakers. But why are people in this city so unhappy? I get the loss to Cincinnati stings. 
I understand the loss to Cleveland was painful. But good grief. The difference in this team with skill, with win-loss record, talent, everything that you look at for an NFL football team, the difference between now and two years ago and now and three years ago is night and day. And really the difference between now and 365 days ago is pretty close to night and day. Yet there is a sense that I'm getting in this city after Sunday's loss to Cleveland that the Jaguars' season might as well be over. I've even had some people say, oh, they're frauds. They're not very good. They got our hopes up. No, maybe you got your hopes too high. You ever think about that? Maybe it's you that had your hopes elevated. Again, this team was awful three years ago. They were awful two years ago, and they were 5-8 and eight at this point last year. So why on earth are you unhappy about 8-5? and five? That I don't understand. I guess the question boils down to this, really. If the Jaguars win the AFC South but get knocked out in round one of the playoffs, would you consider that a failure of a season? Now, two years ago, if you would have told the Jaguar fan base they win the division, it would have been an overwhelming success. I understand expectations do change from month to month and certainly year to year, but just how much do they change or how much should they change? They should be gradual, not gigantic. But I do get the sense, and tell me if I'm wrong. Hit me up on the text line, designed by Lifetime Enclosures, 641-1010. We might even take a phone call or two if we have time. I do get the sense that if the Jaguars hold on and win the South, as they should, again, if you factor in tiebreakers, they're basically two games up on Indianapolis with four to go. They're essentially a game and a half up on Houston with four to go, and Houston has a bunch of injury problems now. They're going to win the division. When you play Carolina, you got to beat them, right? I mean, come on. Tampa, Tennessee, let's say you split those, and let's even say Baltimore beats you. Let's say you finish two and two. Well, if you finish two and two, that would force Indianapolis to go 4-0 and from here on out. And that would basically force Houston to go 4 and 0 as well. So 2 and 2 is going to win you the division at 10 and 7. I think the Jaguars will finish better than that. So the division championship is going to be yours. If you do not win the division, then yeah, at that point we can talk about disappointment if not failure. Under my plausible scenario, the Jaguars do indeed win the division, get the uh, 4 seed at least. So you win the division, you get knocked out in round 1. Is that a failure? I think you would look at it as a failure. I think, quite frankly, some of us in the media would look at it as a failure, although I don't believe we should. I mean, when's the last time the Jacksonville Jaguars won back-to-back division championships? I'll tell you when the last time was. 1998 and 1999? I think it was the last time they won back-to-back division championships. You're talking 24, 25 years ago. Why are we so upset with an 8-5 and five record? Probably 
because you let your expectations get a little out of whack. If you were to tell people at the beginning of the year through 13 games the Jaguars would have the same record as the Kansas City Chiefs, I imagine you would have taken that. If you were to tell people back on Labor Day weekend that through 13 games Jacksonville would have the third best record in the AFC, I imagine people would have taken that. But these last two losses have left a bad taste in your mouth. That could all get erased on Sunday night. If the Jaguars win against a very good Baltimore Raven team, then a lot of the stuff from the last two weeks is gone. But I just want to tell you and reiterate the fact of where this team has come from. The reason they have Trevor Lawrence here is they were the worst team in football in 2020. The reason they have Trayvon Walker here is they were the worst team in football in 2021. And again, even last year, before that big run, they were sitting at 5-8 and eight through 13 games. So don't be upset at 8-5. and five. You can be upset about losing two in a row, two games you very easily could have won, Cincinnati and Cleveland. And look, if Jacksonville goes on to lose four or five games in a row, well, at that point, it's a different conversation. But for the here and now, sitting at 8-5, and five, the overwhelming favorite in the South to win another division championship, your second in a row, and to do that for the first time in a quarter century? I just don't know if you need to be that upset right now at where Jacksonville stands in the grand scheme of things. Doug Peterson met the media earlier today, getting ready for the Baltimore Ravens. They only have four games left. Doug Peterson was asked about the confidence he has that they can fix their issues in that time frame. The confidence level is fine. I, you know, I trust the coaching staff. Like I said, it starts there. I trust the coaches to make sure that they're, you know, making sure our guys are prepared, turning over every stone, taking it from the practice field into the post-practice meetings, you know, and then picking up the next day, you know, kind of where they left off. So, Confidence is still is still high. I mean, you know, it's our job. Our jobs are to make sure that they're they're prepared mentally. My job is also to make sure they're they're ready to go physically, you know, as well. So a little bit of a trade off, but um, a lot of confidence in the staff and, and the players to get it done. It's a big matchup on Sunday, no question about it. Sunday night football, Jacksonville and Baltimore. Doug Peterson, you excited for this matchup against the Ravens? A lot of confidence downstairs. I mean, the guys are excited for this week. So it's a you know two good football teams coming together to top four right now in the AFC you know playing and obviously it's great for the NFL great for great for fans and and um, you know these are the games again it goes back to what I expect our players to, to get used to right playing in, in moments like this and games like this Baltimore obviously has but the confidence is is high it should be high most of the time. My question is, is it really high when you consider Jacksonville's struggles at home? That's a real problem, the Jaguar struggles at home. There is no question about that. That's something I want to get into as we get further along this week. But the fact that they're 2-4 and four at home, the fact that they have had national showcase games at home against Kansas City, against San Francisco, and against Cincinnati, and the fact that they have lost every one of those games is certainly very concerning. And we will see what happens Sunday. Again, the national lights will be on again here in Jacksonville 
when the best team in the AFC record-wise comes in here with the Baltimore Ravens. Coming up next, Cecil Shorts, former Jacksonville Jaguar wide receiver. He joins me every week here on Hacker After Dark. We'll take a look back at Cleveland. We'll certainly preview Baltimore, but I'm going to ask Cecil, a guy that played seven years in the NFL, I believe he's still top 10 among Jaguar receivers with total catches in a Jaguar uniform. I'm going to ask him about Calvin Ridley, about some of the criticism going Calvin Ridley's way this week, and I think he will be very interested in some of the things Cecil Shorts has to say. That's next, Wednesday night edition. And for Blue, it's Hacker After Dark with Dylan Denmark, the Hacker Ryan Green with you here on 1010XL 92.5 FM. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. The Jaguars and the Ravens, Sunday night. Of course, you'll hear the game right here on 1010XL. Baltimore, an AFC best 10-3 coming in to play Jacksonville, who now sits at 8-5 on the year. Let's talk to a man that played seven years in the National Football League, four of those right here in Jacksonville. Former Jaguar wide receiver Cecil Shorts is with us every week here on Hacker After Dark, and we always appreciate Cecil taking time out for us. Cecil, how you doing, man? I'm well, brother. I'm well. How about you? Cecil, we're good. I mean, we were a lot better two weeks ago at 8-3. and three. A couple of losses, hard-fought losses, but losses nonetheless. Uh, your thoughts about last Sunday in Cleveland? Sloppy. Um, probably on both ends, but kind of disappointing when you look at how well the Jaguars have been playing on the road. Um, <clears throat> and they go into that game and you give up, I think, four turnovers. Um First half was just wasn't – they didn't seem like themselves. You could see, in my opinion, Shepard wasn't himself. Um, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. He is better when he's able to move, when he's able to get out the pocket, when he's able to run freely, um, create, um, or at least have the option. And um, Sunday, you know, he's, he was just limited. He was just limited. He couldn't say hobble, but he was just limited with that ankle. Um, wasn't too comfortable out there. And the Browns' defense is is solid. Not going not gonna to deny that. Um, but – talking about the defensive side when you let Joe Flacco who's 48 years old come off the couch and <laughs> dial you up a little bit <laughs> um and respect to Joe Flacco he's he's a he's a professional but um I was kind of disappointed I was kind of disappointed um very frustrated watching the game I just thought it would be a better performance uh from the Jaguars especially after a loss and being on the road I thought they would perform a lot better um especially when they have the lead in the AFC South and they're playing for something uh, as far as playoff bidding and playoff uh, positioning right now. You know, Cecil, it's interesting. And look, there's a lot of issues surrounding the team. But if there is silver lining, and you tell me if I'm wrong, like you said, four turnovers, right? David Njoku could have fair caught two touchdowns. I mean, he was oh, wide gosh. open. I mean, the Jaguars, I mean, yeah, they played horribly on Sunday. Yet having said that, it was 31-27 with an onside kick with 90 seconds to go. Despite yep. playing horribly, they were in the game. Is there any silver lining there? There is, but it's just it's frustrating. Why does it take like you to the end of the game? Even I guess the silver lining is you were still in the game at the end. But to be a a, a, a contender, to be a 
solidified AFC contender year in and year out, you want consistency. And every game you won't get it, right? But majority of the games, you should be able to uh, go out there and play well. And you've been playing well on the road. I was so surprised that four turnovers happened on the road. I was surprised that you led Joe Flacco. You led uh, David and Joku wide open. I'm, I'm surprised. They did a great job stopping the run on defense. Um, but you still, the last two weeks, have not ran the ball well. And you need to have that to help Trevor Lawrence, especially if he's going to be hobbled. Um, so it, there is a silver lining that they were still in the game. But, but if you're going to be a serious AFC contender, because to me, Cleveland had a lot of guys missing. They had tons of people missing, including their quarterback, including their starting running back, including Denzel Ward, their best corner, and, and a few other people. So I expected you to come in, and, and I know it's going to be hard for us. It's tough to win in Cleveland, but – uh, with the weather and everything, but at the same time, if you are a true AFC contender, you can find ways to win, regardless of what's going on. Uh, so there's a silver lining, but there's just still some frustration there seeing how badly they played on both sides of the ball. Former Jaguar wide receiver Cecil Shorts. All right, Cecil, one of the big topics here, uh, Zay Jones and Calvin Ridley last Sunday were targeted 27 times. They combined for nine catches. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but even I know 66% of the time with those numbers, the ball that came their way was not caught. And Ridley in particular, there looked like two instances where he either stopped playing or did not know what he was doing that resulted in interceptions. Uh, your thoughts on everything surrounding the passing game right now? You know what's interesting? Um, even on Parker Washington's touchdown, who I think is going to be a good player, um, he didn't run a route. He's decided to complain to the ref. Uh, that, that being Calvin Ridley. If you watch the bottom of the screen, I believe the touchdown from Trevor to Parker was on the top of the screen. If you look at the bottom of the screen, you see Calvin just kind of looking, arguing with the ref or where the case may be. And he could have, a, it could have been a situation where he didn't have a route, um, but you just, it's just not a good look from a veteran guy who's been around the league a lot. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I'll say this. The playbook for, I'm talking from a receiver standpoint, the playbook for receivers in the offseason is the hardest because everything is up, especially for a new guy, right? A new guy coming into a new system, everything is up. You're learning all the plays, right? So each day, each week, there's tons of plays being added in. It's like nothing is like dwindled down. It's just everything is up. You're 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 having, having to learn formations and, and um, schemes, learning quick game, you learn an intermediate game, you learn the deep passing schemes, you're learning different terminology. Um, you're learning all these things. Now, that's the most difficult part about the playbook, especially like I remember coming into Houston after I left Jacksonville, there were so many small details. Like I would come to the line of scrimmage and I'll have three different routes, depending based on the coverage, based on the look, based on the audible, right? Like if, if I came to the line of scrimmage and we, we come line of scrimmage sometime with two plays, so based on what – and normally it's like a run play and a pass play. So based on what they give us, we've got to know what we're doing. Or if a blitz comes, I have to know what my hot read is, right? But the hardest part about learning an offense is the offseason because everything is up. Once you get into the regular season, everything is not up. They're not calling random plays. They're not just calling something from, you know, they called way back in, in rookie minicamp or, 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 excuse me, veteran minicamp. These plays are scripted. The playbook is a lot smaller. Um, and you know going into the game, what exactly are the plays we're going to call? The, call, the plays we'll call a lot. 
the place will call somewhat and the place will call a little bit. And I'm saying all that to say this. For Calvin Ridley, and it's not just this week from my understanding, it's multiple weeks over the 14-week season that we've had so far that he has ran the wrong route or not been in the place he's supposed to be at. That tells me he's not either preparing like he should or he can't mentally handle the offense that they're in. So if he's not preparing as he should, that's totally on him. Because literally the playbook week in and week out during the season is so much more easier to consume, to understand. You know exactly what you have to do and where you're supposed to be. There may be a couple plays in there that you may be confused about, but you're going to practice those because you're going to bring them up. Coach is going to make an emphasis on it. Hey, on this particular play, on this look, you have this route, right? That is, it's that simple. If he's not preparing, that's completely on him as a professional. Because there's no excuse for 27, I believe he's 28 years old, he's been in the league four, five, six years, whatever it is, to run the wrong route. It's no excuse for that, right? Zero. Especially during the weeks. During the regular season. The, the, the playbook is so dwindled down. You know exactly what, I used to know exactly what I had. Like, on third down, I knew what was coming. Second down, I knew what was coming. First down, I knew what was coming. Like, the possibilities. It, it was no time during the game that I'm like, dang, I don't know this play, or I don't know the route. And if I didn't, I would ask the quarterback. I would communicate with the other receivers. So that's – this is what I'm having trouble with. It's either that or he is just not – doesn't have the mental capacity. And I don't want to offend him in no type of way because he's, he's an awesome, awesome receiver, great route runner. It don't matter how good you run routes if you're not running the right route. If <laughs> you're not in the right spot, right? Well, and the interesting or, thing is, right when the first interception happened in the in the red zone, Trevor pointed to his eyes. Obviously, Trevor thought Calvin was going to do something that he didn't do. And if you go back and you watch it, it's almost as if Ridley ran it too deep and didn't cut in when Trevor thought. Now, again, these guys have not been working with each other, you know, for five years. These guys have been working with each other since, I guess, May when they got out on the field. But you are right; it's 14 weeks in. Do we give Ridley any of the benefit of the doubt that he's still in year one with Trevor, or should that There's stuff no have been cleared up by now? It's no excuse. It's no excuse because he's pointing to his eyes saying, hey, like that's either a signal saying, hey, you need to look at me because I'm checking you something, or hey, pay attention to the defense, like know what's going on. That's something they worked in where they, they had to work throughout the week with. Right. So that was something that Trevor saw, that Coach Peterson saw, that that Calvin said that Calvin and them worked on throughout the week. That's why he's touching his eyes. It's like, hey, we got to be able to see that. We saw this either blitz or play or we worked on that, and you have not studied or you, you didn't run the right route. There's no excuse for that. Heck, I'm sorry. It's week 14. If you're going to be a true contender, you can't have this happen over and over and over and over again. Like, to me, you're a vet. You, you should know how to prepare. You should know how to study. So at this point in time in a season, you can't have mistakes like that. If it's once, okay, cool. If it's, you know, a couple of times, okay, cool. But this has been something that – it's been year year round. Yeah, I mean not year round, but throughout the year. So this has to be fixed, and that's on Calvin. Calvin got to prepare better. That's just what it is. And if, if the playbook is too much week in and week out, then they, they need to give him a smaller package, which would you know help him understand. Okay, this is what I exactly have on these particular plays. But if that's the case, then he's not your number one receiver. Then he can't handle it because your number one guy has to be able to be able to understand the defense, understand the cause, understand when there's a blitz, my route may change because 
the, the depth may change because I don't have that much time, right? So for him, I don't know what it is, but they have to figure it out. Now, I'll be honest with you, this tells me, because I believe he's a free agent this offseason, I doubt if I would bring him back if I'm the Jaguars. I would seriously consider going after somebody else or working with the guys I have in-house. Because if I can't trust him to run the right route after 14 weeks in minicamp and training camp and everything else, how can I trust him in the playoffs? How can I trust him next season in the second year of the offense? I'd rather go out and get Mike Evans or Michael Pittman or somebody else and bring them in and school them up when they don't have the same exact issues, right? So for me, I mean, that to me, that is like, do we still want him here next year? If that's really the issue, do we still want him here? Because right now, to me, there's no excuse. It's a great perspective. Former Jaguar wide receiver Cecil Shorts, you would know better than most. Cecil played seven years in the National Football League at the wide receiver position. Zay Jones didn't have a great game either last week. Those guys got to step up uh, in light of Christian Kirk being out. Cecil, quickly, because I want to get to Baltimore. What's been overshadowed in the last two losses is Evan Ingram, man. I mean, Ingram's got 17 catches, I think, for 170 yards and three touchdowns in these two losses outside of guys named Travis Kelsey and I guess maybe George Kittle. I'm not sure if there's a better tight end in the league right now than Evan Ingram. He is hot right now. Caught 11 out of 12 targets. Um, He is the most trustworthy and Christian Kirk too, but with Christian out, he is by far the most trustworthy receiver that you have or pass catcher that you have on this Jacksonville offense. He's probably the most consistent guy you have on offense right now with the run game being out, out of sorts right now. He is somebody that's getting open consistently. He's being in the right place at the right time. His confidence is sky high. I don't see him slowing down at all. He is like a safety blanket for Trevor Lawrence. Trevor trusts him. He's in the right spots at the right times, and he's making plays, making tough catches, making third down catches. He is living up to what he was supposed to be in New York, coming out out of that first-round draft pick, right? He is that guy, and he is solidifying himself right now as one of the top five tight ends in the league. He has to continue. But he has solidified himself as one of the best pass catchers in the league. And that is something when you have him, when you have Kirk, when you have uh, Travis Etienne, you are building something special. Right. Um, so if we can get if we can get Calvin going and his offense uh, and other ways going. You you solidified your spot in the middle because this dude is unstoppable right now. And the thing is, now you got to really, really prepare for him. Hey, he got 12 targets last week we before he had 10 targets we before that. Like he's getting tons of targets but he's making the most out of his targets and the run after catch he he is just playing at a, an extremely high level um i want to say he has the franchise record right now for most catches by a tight end in the season yeah broke his um, own record that he set last record, year right? yeah so if you, if you look at it <laughs> from the previous years like joe brady and Mercedes lewis like 60 something and 50 something so for him um he's ascending man and it's exciting to see because he, he's still young and got a lot left in the tank Final moments with Cecil Shorts. All right, Cecil, they're home on Sunday night football. First time in a long time on Sunday night football. Baltimore rolls in. They got to figure out a way to win a home game, man. They're two and four here at Everbank Stadium. This will be the fourth, quote, showcase home game this year. Kansas City beat them. San Francisco humiliated them. Cincinnati got them. I mean, good heavens. Uh, They're staring a two and five home record in the face. If they lose on Sunday night, not protecting home field is a big, big concern. It's a big concern, but I think this game, and you mentioned the team that you mentioned, this game would like, let's tell the truth Sunday. Are you a real contender, a Super Bowl contender or not? Like, let's be honest. 
San Francisco kicked you behind Super Bowl contender. Kansas City Chiefs kicked you behind Super Bowl contender. Like Baltimore Ravens are a Super Bowl contender. So this game will speak a lot about who Jacksonville is. Will you step up to the plate? Will you step up at home, which you struggle? You mentioned two and five or something like that at home, right? Will you step up to the plate against Baltimore? They're hot right now. They just want an overtime game. Lamar Jackson looks outstanding. Odell Beckham is like a resurgence of him. Zay Flowers, the rookies making plays everywhere. The defense is one of the top defenses in the league. Clowney's resurgence over there. It's just they are a a contending Super Bowl team. Are you a contending team? This game will say a lot about who you are as a franchise right now. Are you a Super Bowl contender or just a, you know, just a, a one-round team right now? Because right now where I'm leaning towards, like, uh, they'll probably be one round and done. Or, yeah, they won the South this year most likely, but I'm not sure how deep they can go. Um, You know, depends on health, all this stuff. Like, these teams that you're facing and you're getting your butt kicked against are – solidified Super Bowl contenders. They've proven it in, in the AFC Championship or the NFC Championship or even the Super Bowls, right? These teams are legit. So Sunday, that's what I'm looking for. I don't care if they're home, if they're away. I don't care if they're playing uh, in one of the high school stadiums nearby. They need to make sure they show up and show out on Sunday night football. This will tell us a lot, Hack, about if they're really Super Bowl contenders. I agree. I couldn't disagree or I couldn't agree with you anymore. You're exactly spot on, in my opinion. Cecil, 90 seconds. You're out in Houston. Not only did Houston lose last week to New York, they got beat up in the process. What's the status of guys like Nico Collins, C.J. Stroud? Where are the Texans coming into this week against Tennessee? They're banged up, brother. They're, they're banged up. Um, C.J.'s in the, in the concussion protocol right now. Um Nico is still questionable. So you lose Nico early last week. Now you're down to your fourth, fifth, and sixth receiver, or third, fourth, and fifth receiver. Didn't have Dalton Schultz last week at all. Guys weren't getting open, no separation. They got their butt kicked. We, we, everybody knows the Jets defense is the real deal, but um, the the Texans defense made Zach Wilson look like the second coming of Aaron Rodgers last week. I was sitting there watching it like, what in the world is going on? Guys running left and right, getting open. He's – Floating to his left, throwing back to the middle for touchdowns. Um, very disappointing performance. Very disappointing. It showed their youth last Sunday. Um, so it's a lot of uh, a lot of guys trying to just. D'Amico's really in the media talking about we have to galvanize the troops and, and get them get going because this is a big week this week versus I believe Tennessee. Yeah, a hot a Tennessee team game. coming off a of Monday night, right? Yeah, so it's going to be it's important. They want to make the playoffs. They gotta they gotta probably win the last four games. They got Tennessee twice, they got Cleveland, and then they got the Colts. They probably got to at least go 3-1, and 4-0, and hope some other people lose. Um, so we'll see how serious they are, if they're playoff contenders or not. But they're definitely trying to regalvanize re the troops and, and get them going in the right direction. You get Cecil Shorts every week here on Hacker After Dark. We always have the Cecil Shorts Bowl when the Jaguars take on the Texans. We kind of got another Cecil Shorts Bowl next week, right? You had a cup of coffee in Tampa Bay. It'll be the Jaguars. <laughs> it'll be the Buccaneers next Sunday. Cecil, we'll talk about it next week, my friend. Appreciate your candor. Great stuff. We'll do it again next week, bud. Hey, appreciate you, man. Talk to you soon. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of confidence, um, you know, in, in, in those guys and our offense um, and bouncing back this week. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of things that we didn't do well out there, really you know, in all aspects of the game. So, uh, you know, and the good thing is what I've learned um, through playing for a while now is 
the tape is usually never as good or as bad as you think. So you watch it and it is what it is. There's corrections. Obviously there's things that we did in the game that are uncharacteristic and, and, and mistakes, you know, all the way around that we can't make. But it is what it is and you gotta correct them and move on. The thoughts of Jaguar quarterback Trevor Lawrence earlier today. Trevor Lawrence was a full participant in practice. There was no limited des distinction for him. It was a lengthy injury report for the Jaguars, but a lot of limited. A lot of guys got out there for a little bit of practice. The only two that did not today were Andre Sisco and Tyson Campbell. Obviously, that's not good. Two guys in your secondary uh, Campbell with a quadricep that kept him out last week against Cleveland. He's still battling that. Cisco has a groin injury, and those can be like hamstrings, right? You got to be careful with those because if you go back out there too early, they can flare up and be even worse than they are now. So we'll see about Cisco and Campbell. But Walker, Lim Walker Little was limited. Britton Strange limited. They opened Jamal Agnew's 21-day window from IR to come back. Ezra Cleveland was limited. So slowly but surely, the Jaguars are going to get healthier. That's what's odd, right? I mean, they probably had 12 or 13 guys on their injury report. That doesn't even take into account Cam Robinson, who's still on IR, and Christian Kirk, who's still on IR. I mean, the team's beat to heck. Yet most of these guys will come back in the next three to four weeks before the playoffs. Um Agnew's window open today. Cam Robinson has to miss at least two more games. We'll see where he is. Kirk is the one that probably would not come back until the playoffs, but there is hope that a lot of these guys that have missed time as of late will indeed be back in the lineup sooner rather than later. One final thought from Trevor Lawrence. It's what everybody's talking about, right? Prime time again. Playing Baltimore. Sunday night football returns to Jacksonville. It was not a good return to Monday night football. What's Trevor's thoughts on a primetime game against Baltimore this week? Yeah, you know, it's it's exciting. Uh, but like I said, for the Monday night game, it's just another game. You know, for us, nothing changes. We just play a little bit later Sunday night. So we can't make it more than it is. Obviously, it's a great opportunity for us to take advantage of and, and to play well in, in front of, a, I guess, a, a bigger audience and crowd and all that. And it's going to be a night game, and it's going to be the only game on Sunday night. So... You know, that's exciting for us. Wednesday night edition, Hacker After Dark, in for Baloo tonight, 1010XL, 92.5 FM. Coming up in less than 10 minutes, Matt Verderam of Sports Illustrated. He does a great job covering the National Football League. He's been with SI for a little bit of time now. He's quickly becoming one of my favorite guys to talk to. If you haven't heard any of my conversations with Matt Verderam, do yourself a favor and stay tuned. Because he, unlike a lot of national guys, doesn't sugarcoat a whole lot. He's going to tell you what he thinks. And he's going to flat out tell you what he thinks about the Jaguars and primarily the Jaguar defense. It's a lot of brutal honesty, I would call it. But Matt Verderam of Sports Illustrated coming up in less than 10 minutes at the bottom of the 7 o'clock hour. We will talk a little college ball, the soap opera going on in Gainesville, the fallout with Florida State. Josh Pate, the Late Kick Podcast and Late Kick Live. You also see him on CBS Sports and 24-7. He will be up with us here at about 7.30 this evening. You know, one of the things I was thinking about driving in today is how quickly narratives can change 
in the National Football League, usually in regards to teams, but in this instance, it's in regards to a division. You know, I'm old enough to remember three months ago, roughly, when the season started, that people thought the AFC South was just going to be awful, right? It was the Jaguars and everybody else. Just a terrible division would be competing with the NFC South for the worst division in football. But along the way, something happened in Houston, in Indianapolis, and to a lesser extent, Tennessee. And you could really make the argument right now that the AFC South is better than the AFC West. I don't think there's much of an argument there, actually. The South is better than the West. Could you make the argument the South is in the conversation with the East? Yeah, I think he could. I don't think it's as good as the North, but not many divisions are. You could realistically say the South has gone from being in conversation for the worst division in football to the second best in the conference. Tennessee, I think, has found something with Will Levis. We didn't talk much about this last night, but that comeback against Miami, I don't know if that was a meltdown. I don't know if that was a terrific performance by the Titans, maybe equal measures of both, but that is a comeback that we haven't seen in the National Football League in decades. I mean, what was the stat? A team down 14 with under three minutes to go had not won a game in regulation in like 40 years. Tennessee did it on, on Monday night. It was a crazy performance by Will Levis, a 24-year-old rookie quarterback. Ironically enough, Will Levis is three months older than Trevor Lawrence. Go figure on that one. Indianapolis, Shane Steichen should be in conversation for coach of the year. They lost Anthony Richardson a month into the year. They've played a lot of games this year without Jonathan Taylor. They flat-out released Darius Leonard, who was thought to be one of their best defensive players. And if the playoffs started today, Indianapolis would be in at 7-6. and six. They're 7-4 and four against every team in the NFL not named Jacksonville. They've done an incredible job with Gardner Minshew up there, Shane Steichen, the head coach. They got a big one on Saturday. 7-6 and six, Pittsburgh and 7-6 and six, Indianapolis. And then finally, Houston, maybe the biggest surprise in the NFL, certainly one of them. Now, they have injury problems now, but with C.J. Stroud and that young nucleus, they've certainly overachieved. So the AFC South has gone from no respect to not enough respect in the last three months, and it'll be interesting to see how it closes out. Again, the Jaguars should be the overwhelming favorite based on tiebreakers. I think two and two for Jacksonville gets you home as a division winner. Anything over that, obviously, you will also win the division and be guaranteed at least one home playoff game. Denmark, what do you got? This just on Hacker After Dark. FSU linebacker DJ Lundy is announcing he's going to the transfer portal. He was expected to be FSU's best linebacker going into next year, and uh, I guess he's going to see what he's got out there. You know, I talked to Brent Beard last night about the transfer portal. It was Florida, Florida State, Miami, I think Georgia, Alabama, LSU. There were a, a number of schools that he listed that had 13 or more of their players from this past season 
that have already entered the portal. It's insane. The transfer portal is insane right now. Max Brown, who started a game for the Florida Gators as their quarterback 18 days ago against Florida State, committed to Charlotte yesterday and is now going to Charlotte to participate in their conditioning, getting ready for the 2024 season. He was the quarterback at Florida three weeks ago against Florida State. It is a crazy time of year. You got the transfer portal. A week from today is the first early signing period. Not to mention bowl practice. Bowl games begin on Saturday. College football's got to do something, man. They have lumped too much into the month of December. It's too compacted. I thought Bill Bender of the Sporting News made a great analogy with us on Monday night. What they've done with the transfer portal in the month of December would be like the National Football League starting free agency on wildcard weekend. I mean, you have teams in in the playoff, Michigan, Alabama, right? Washington, Texas, teams in the playoff that are competing for a national championship in a couple of weeks that have guys in the transfer portal. Now, of course, most of these guys are not starters, but nevertheless, you got, I mean, bowl practice is underway. College football playoff games are less than three weeks away. And you have guys entering the portal from these teams. It's insane. Insane where we are now in college football. No question about it. It's going to be, there's going to be guardrails put on it some way, somehow. In fact, I'm going to talk to Josh Pate, Late Kick Live, the Late Kick Pod, about this coming up in about 30 minutes. What can be done about the portal? Because you're getting guys now that are transferring two and three times. DJ Ungolele, right, from Clemson, he goes to Oregon State for one year, and now he's back in the portal. He's going to play at three different schools in three different years. At what point does that become a problem? At what point does that begin hurting the product? I'll tell you, the transfer portal to me has killed college basketball. There was a time with Florida and all these SEC schools that you might have known a couple of guys on the team, right? When Florida went to play Kentucky, you knew some of the Kentucky guys. Not anymore. When Florida would go play Tennessee, you knew some of the Tennessee guys. Not anymore. Quick, if you're a diehard Gator basketball fan, name me two players on the Tennessee Volunteers. Not one. Right. Name me two players on the Kentucky Wildcats. I only know one person playing college basketball, and it's LeBron's son. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know the Gator roster pretty good, but I don't know any of the other teams. So the transfer portal to me in college basketball, I get it. It's for the players and, and whatever, but I think that's hurt that product a little bit. I hope we don't get to that point in college football, but I am a little concerned with the amount of guys that are transferring seemingly every year. Again, when you have a guy playing at three schools in three years, I think at some point you need to draw a line there. Six four one ten ten. more on college football coming up at the bottom of the 7 o'clock hour. Coming up next, back into the world of the NFL, Matt Verderam of Sports Illustrated. Let's talk Jaguars. Let's talk AFC South. Let's look around the rest of the AFC as we get ready for Sunday night football. Returning to Jacksonville, Jaguars and the Ravens. You'll hear it right here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. And in case you're wondering, because I assume, of course, all of you are wondering, the answer is yes. Leon Searcy, Dave Campo, and myself 
will go deep into the evening, early hours Monday morning. We will have a fifth quarter for you two hours after the Jaguars and the Ravens go final. Jaguars didn't do us any favors after Cincinnati. We had to stick around and talk about a loss. I really hope the outcome Sunday night is different, and we're talking about a victory in the early hours of Monday morning with the fifth quarter. Matt Verderam, Sports Illustrated, SI.com. Next, Wednesday night edition of Hacker After Dark. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL at 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. The Jaguars and the Ravens Sunday night. Of course, you'll hear it right here on your home of the Jacksonville Jaguars. 1010XL, Baltimore, 10-3 on the year, coming in to play a Jaguar team, now sitting at 8-5. Let's preview the game and look around the rest of the American Football Conference with Matt Verderam. He does a terrific job covering the National Football League for Sports Illustrated, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Matt, how you doing, man? Doing well. How are you? Matt, we're good. Well, I guess we're good. The Jaguars have lost three out of five. The last time you and I talked, Jacksonville was 6-2 and two and all was right with the world, and since then, annihilated by San Francisco, heartbreaking losses to Cincy and Cleveland, Jaguars are reeling, Matt. What's your thought on them right now at eight and five? Um, I think they're still going to win the AFC South, but if their pass defense doesn't get better, I think that's probably about all they're winning. Because at some point, you got to get off the field. You got to play defense, and when you're getting lit up by Jake Browning and Joe Flacco, like you got a problem. You got a big problem because in the playoffs, you're seeing better quarterbacks than that. You're seeing better passing offenses than that. Um, I mean, Jacksonville's a bottom five pass defense in terms of yards allowed per game uh, through the air. And and I think, you know, look, this is a team that there's talent, but, you know, Christian Kirk is hurt right now. Lawrence is obviously playing, but he's injured. You've got a defense that they're going to step up. They don't have to be great, but they've got to be decent. And when when you're getting torched by backup quarterbacks, I mean, Flacco is essentially the fourth stringer for the Browns. When you're getting when you're giving up 30 plus the teams like that with those quarterbacks, I mean, that's a five-alarm fire. Always love Matt Verderam. He doesn't sugarcoat a whole lot, and I agree with you, man. Absolutely. The defense was terrible. I guess the one silver lining I have from Sunday's game, and this is what I'm trying to tell Jaguar fans who believe the sky is falling, I don't know if Jacksonville could play much worse. They turned the ball over four times. Yeah. David and Joku could have fair caught two touchdowns. I mean, it was ridiculous. And yet it's 31-27 with an onside kick with 90 seconds to go. So from that standpoint, as bad as they played in Cleveland, they were still very much in that game. Yeah. They were, I mean, listen, that's, that's true. I, I think, you know, you could definitely look at it that way. I mean, Lawrence has three picks. They fumbled the ball. They, you know, I mean, everything they could have done to lose, they did. And, you know, you look at the game and say, okay, well, listen, uh, a lot to clean up, but yeah, you, you know, there, there were some things offensively. You walked out of games and Cleveland's got a good defense and did hang 27 points on them. Um, look, I, I don't think the sky's falling, but I, but I think that if you're being honest with yourself at some point here, like you got to play defense. I mean, you just got to stop somebody. And San Francisco let them up. Houston let them up earlier in the year. Kansas city had three turnovers, but Kansas city moved the ball for huge chunks of that game. Uh, you know, I mean, at, at some point here, like, 
you got to stop someone. You, you got to be able to cover. There's got to be somebody other than Josh Allen who's consistently winning up front. Like it's, it's a situation where, yeah, look, the Jags going to make the playoffs. I, I still think they'll, they'll win the division, but at some point here, uh, if you're going to get in the playoffs, you're going to play a team with a real pass attack. It's a problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's some juncture. You've got to be able to shut off some of these, these, uh, you know, these passing games and, and keep teams under 240, you know, 50 yards. And they got to win at home too, Matt. I mean, they're six and one outside of Everbank Stadium. They're two and four inside yep. Everbank Stadium. That brings me to Sunday night. The number one seed right now in the AFC, the Baltimore Ravens, roll in. Look, I think every team in the AFC has a flaw. Every team in the AFC has something they need to work on. Baltimore probably the fewest of any with flaws. There's some issues, but clearly ten and three speaks for itself. It does. But you know what's funny? Like I actually think Jacksonville is going to win the game. Because I think Baltimore, the flaw they have is I don't trust their passing game. Like, if there's anything about Baltimore you look at and go, eh, passing game's not great. I mean, Jackson is is a, a certainly a very competent quarterback, but he is more of a dual threat than he is to say, I'm going to drop back and slice up all game long. They don't have a top-tier receiver. Mark Andrews is out for the season. Um, that's a team that, like, if you can shut off the run, you can shut them down. I mean, you can really take away – a lot of what they do on offense. That's not easy to shut down the run. They're an excellent rushing team. But like, I think if you're Jacksonville, that's the matchup you want. Like, if I'm Jacksonville, I would much rather see a team like Baltimore right now than a team like in Miami who's just going to drop back and throw all over the place. Um, you know, or Buffalo. And I know they beat Buffalo earlier in the year, but Buffalo to me schematically is a tougher matchup. Like, Baltimore's tough, and Baltimore's got a great defense. I mean, Jacksonville in this game – Look, you know what the Jags, you like the short passing game. That helps against the Ravens, who have the most sacks in football, and they get a lot of pressure. You can get the ball out quick. I mean, to me, this has got to be a game where ETN and Ingram really make a big difference, where you can swing that ball out, get it out quick, beat a guy one-on-one in space. I mean, you know, they're going to have their opportunities. They're going to have to find a way to do it if Jacksonville's going to win the game. Matt Verderam of Sports Illustrated here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Matt, for a while now, the four division leaders in the AFC have been the same, right? Baltimore, Kansas City, Jacksonville, Miami. Uh, Of those four, who do you think with a month to go is at the greatest risk of not winning their division? Well, I think Baltimore is definitely going to win the North. I think she's going to win the West. I don't think she's going to lose another game. Um. I, I get, you know, in an odd way, Miami, because Buffalo, you know, you look at their schedule and go, well, you know, tough schedule, tough schedule. If they beat Dallas, they have the Chargers and the Patriots. They're going to win those games. I mean, they're, they're going, if they can beat Dallas, which is a big if, a very big if, but if they do it, they're going to be 10 and six going to the last week of the season. And they play Miami in Miami and Miami just lost one of the most ridiculous football games I've ever seen. And the Dolphins, okay, you get the Jets next week. They got Dallas, and then they're at Baltimore. I mean, there's a real world where they're 10 and 6, and Buffalo's 10 and 6, and they're playing a game that, depending on the breakers, especially for Miami, that could be like you win and you win the division, you lose and you miss the playoffs. So, um, I would say that Miami, after last night's catastrophe against the Titans, they they are at the biggest risk. Yeah, that was unbelievable what Tennessee did. Jacksonville actually sees Tennessee 
Week 18. We'll see if that game means something for the Jaguars. That brings me to the AFC South before we look at the AFC as a whole. Boy, real opportunity, Matt, for both Indy and Houston last week. Neither one were able to take advantage of it. Indy gets boat raced by Cincinnati. And I got to tell you, the Houston loss to New York, to me, was like the Jacksonville loss to Cincinnati. It only counts one time in the L column, but, man, they got beat up. Just like Jacksonville got beat up against the Bengals, Houston lost uh, Nico Collins. We know C.J. Stroud's in the protocol right now. Will Anderson yep. left with an ankle. That was a bad day for the Texans. A brutal day. A brutal day. I mean, look, that's a game for the Texans. You're thinking to yourself going into that day, like, hey, we're going to win this game, get to 8-5. and five. Really, you know, even if it's a wild card, move toward the playoffs. And you give up 300 yards passing to Zach Wilson. I mean, that is, that's almost impossible to give 300 yards to Zach Wilson. I mean, that, that team can't score a point. And you get not only beat, but as you mentioned, all these injuries. Tank Dell is already out for the year. Um, no, they've got problems. I mean, that, you know, and that's a team I think, and I know myself included, you looked at before that Jets game, well, they're going to make the playoffs. I mean, you know, look at their schedule. All of a sudden, now you look at them, go, I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs. And, you know, Indianapolis and Houston play week 18. That game might be a winning in scenario. I mean, that might be, hey, same like as you said about Miami and Buffalo. I think Miami. Miami probably wins a tiebreaker against enough teams are probably all right. Buffalo might not. Buffalo might have to win to get in. But Indy and, and Houston, Week 18, that could very well be a, essentially a playoff game at Lucas Oil. The benefit the Jaguars have, they're 8-5. and five. The Colts and the Texans are 7-6. and six, But the tiebreakers all favor Jacksonville. So, essentially, right. the Jaguars are up two games with four to go on both teams. Give Jaguar fans some hope here before we branch out to the rest of the conference. You feel pretty safe that the Jags are going to win the division? Yeah, they're going to win the division. I, I would, I'd be shocked. I mean, unless Lawrence has to, like, miss time or something. Yeah, they're going to – I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Jacksonville still has Carolina, right? Yeah, Car they're, they're Baltimore right. this week, at Tampa, Carolina at home, at Tennessee. Yeah, there's no way they're going worse than 2-2, two and two, and I'd be shocked if they went worse than 3-1. I mean, they, look, Jacksonville's going to make the playoffs, going to win the division – the question is going to be, when they get there, can they stop anybody? Or has this just become one of these things where Jacksonville is going to have to score 35 points? I mean, that that to me is what I look at because in the playoffs, I don't want to say I don't care about your run defense. Like your run defense matters. But in the postseason, when you're seeing the Mahomes of, Mahomes of the world in, in most years, the Burroughs of the world, Josh Allen, and you know, in some years Herbert, who, of course, Jacksonville was able to beat last year in that crazy game, like you're going to have to score points. And you have to be able to go off. It doesn't always have to be dominating, but you've got to be able to get a stop on third and eight. You've got to be able to get a, get a stop on third and six, get off the field. That's my biggest question. But in terms of the AFC South, no, I still absolutely think Jacksonville's going to win. Final moments, Matt Verderam of Sports Illustrated. Matt, if we assume Chiefs, Ravens, Dolphins, Jaguars are in either division winners or the wild card, that would leave three spots for seven teams that are all seven and six or eight and five right now. How do you see the final three spots in the AFC shaking out? I think Cleveland's going to get in. Um, they're eight and five. You know, Flacco, I think we'll give them enough. They, they got the Bears at home. They got the Jets at home. They played the Bengals last week of the year. They, they own the Bengals. They beat them every time they play them. Uh, I'll take Cleveland to get one of the spots. If C.J. Stroud is good and he's healthy, I still think of all those teams outside of Buffalo, he's the best quarterback. I'll, I'll take them. I'll, I'll take them to get in to find a way at 10 wins. 
And then after that, I think it's just going to come down to a slew of tiebreakers. And who I, Indianapolis has the schedule that I look at Indy and I think, I think they probably find a way to get to 10. So let's put it this way. I think Cleveland will get in. I think one of Indy and Houston will get in. And then if Buffalo can beat Dallas, I think they get into the playoffs. If they can't, I actually think Denver is going to get to 10 because Denver's schedule is a joke. They play Detroit on the road, which is hard. And after that, they got the Raiders, the Chargers, and the Patriots. Um, so And they win the break against Buffalo. So give me Cleveland, give me one of the AFC South teams, and then Buffalo, if they can beat Dallas, if not, give me Denver. I mean, it's parody at its finest, right? Only two teams have officially been eliminated, I believe Carolina and New England. So we got four right. weeks to go, and there are 30 teams that are still mathematically alive. The NFL's got to love this. I mean, the New York Giants are one game out of a playoff spot right now. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. That is crazy. There's no doubt. They got a big win over Green Bay on Monday night. Quickly, Matt, while we have you, NFC looks like it's San Francisco and Dallas maybe. Philadelphia is leaking water. Detroit is leaking water. But are those the four? Is there anybody else in the NFC that could do anything? No, the South isn't even a real division. And I – Seattle is just falling apart. I, I like Seattle earlier in the year, but Gino went on that turnover run, and now he, he's hurt. Um, I don't buy anybody. The Packers, to me, they're, they're fine. Like, if they get in the playoffs, they could maybe be a little interesting in a wild card game. Same thing with the Rams, but not enough that I would buy them as, like, an actual threat. Look, I think it's going to be San Francisco's the favorite. I'm not sleeping on Philly. I look at Philly a lot in the same way I look at Kansas City. Those teams, like they got, they have flaws, they have real issues. But at the same point, like you line up to play that team in January, you know, I, I, I wouldn't. So I, I think Philadelphia, while kind of a wounded animal at the moment, I still think home or away, they're a team that nobody is excited to face. You know, before you moved to Sports Illustrated, you did a lot of work in KC, and I'm just curious with Mahomes and, and what he did on the field after that game. Obviously, he addressed it in the media earlier this week. The fact that they've right. lost, I think, three out of five. It is very abnormal to see Kansas City at 8-5 and five and losing three games at home. And Chris Jones getting into it right with an assistant. I mean, is there trouble yep. in paradise there, Matt, or is this something they can quickly get, get rid of? No, there's a lot of trouble in paradise right now with them. I mean, they've lost three out of four, four out of six. They can't score. I mean, they just they cannot score. They move the ball up and down the field like crazy. But they lead the league in drops. They're top five in turnovers. They they are they have the most penalized offensive line in football. They just can't stop beating themselves. I mean, I would argue if the Chiefs get to the playoffs, which they will, and they play their best game, they'll go to the Super Bowl. They're just they're they're the most complete AFC team when they're right. The problem is they're very rarely right this year. I mean they've only had two games they haven't had a turnover. They turn over constantly. Um and their receivers are terrible outside of Rasheed Rice. So um it's been a big struggle for him. And you know, look Mahomes I, the the little bit I know of him as a person, I mean he's always been a class guy. That to me while, while unacceptable and out of character, both the way he was with Josh Allen, and I know he apologized too, and then and then after the game whining about the officiating, which is correct, by the way, it was a penalty. Um, I don't think that had much to do with the official. I think that was a year's worth of frustration that he can't say. I think he would have loved to have gone up there and just said, you know what, Canarius Tony's killing us, and Sky Moore's in that negative, and MVS is in that negative, and we have nobody I can throw a ball to other than Travis Kelsey and have any reliability with. 
but he can't say that. So it came out as yelling at the officials, but um, he's extremely frustrated. And so are they because they're wasting a year of a great defense and a great quarterback. Matt, it's a big one in Jacksonville on Sunday with the Jaguars and the Ravens. Tell the good folks here in Jacksonville when they head on over to Sports Illustrated what they'll see leading into this game, leading into this NFL weekend. Yeah, uh, so I've got my quarterback rankings to go up Thursday. I've got one matchup to watch, kind of an under-the-radar thing that goes out on Friday, one matchup for each game. On Sunday, I'll have my running column. You can just go to SI.com. It's right there on the, the, the front page in the big box. And uh, I'll, I give my thoughts on what every game means, big picture, as they're ending. I, I give my rapid reaction to it. Um, there's a film study out that actually involves the Jags and, and the Browns. So that came out this morning. You can go to actually, no, it comes out tomorrow morning. It comes out tomorrow morning. You should check that out. Um, so there's, there's plenty, there's plenty. There's, there's no shortage of stuff to read. He's one of our favorites. Matt Verderam of sports illustrated, always kind enough to join us here on 1010 XL. Matt, appreciate it, man. We'll do it again soon. Hey, no problem. Anytime. This just on hacker after dark. All right. We got Josh Pate of the late kick live, the late kick pod talking college football in less than 10 minutes before we get there. The SEC schedule is being announced for 2024. We already knew who Florida was playing. We knew where they were playing them. Now we know when they are playing them quickly. The month of September for the Gators. They will open up actually in the last day of August, August 31st, at home against Miami. Samford comes in September 7th, Texas A&M September 14th, and Florida's first road game is at Mississippi State. So the first four for the Gators next year, home Miami, home Samford, home Texas A&M at Mississippi State. Then a bye week, month of October. They only play three games. UCF at home at Tennessee, Kentucky at home. So again, only three games in October. UCF and Gainesville in Knoxville against the Vols at Kentucky. And listen to the month of November. Georgia here at Texas, LSU in Gainesville, Ole Miss in Gainesville at Florida State. Are you kidding me? Again, the month of November, the cocktail party, the very next week at Texas, the very next week home LSU, the next week home Ole Miss, and then finally at Florida State. Good luck with that schedule. If that's not the toughest schedule in college football, I'd like to see what is. That is brutal for the Gators. More on that in the days to come. We will get into college football. Josh Pate, transfer portal. Billy Napier, the fallout from Florida State and Tallahassee, and much more. That's coming up next on a Wednesday night edition of Hacker After Dark. We're in for Blue here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. The college football regular season in the rearview mirror. Bowl season begins on Saturday, and there's an awful lot to discuss still with Florida and the saga going on in Gainesville and Florida State and their fan base still not yet recovered from getting left out of the college football playoff. With all that being said, let's bring in Josh Pate, one of the voices of college football. He of the Late Kick Pod, Late Kick Live. You also see him all over 24-7 and CBS Sports HQ. Josh, appreciate the time today, man. How are you? 
I'm good. So let me paint the picture. I'm at a railroad crossing right now. There's a train going by in front of me. And what it feels like is like one, two, three, four, as you watch these cars go by, that's kind of what it feels like during transfer portal season when, when it combines with playoff selection season, when it combines with recruiting season. There's no and, and by the way, coaching search is happening, too. There's no possible way, even if you stay glued to your phone at all times, that you can keep up with everything going on in the sport right now. It's wild. Josh, everybody's in agreement that there's too much going on right now. I completely agree with you. What is going to be done about that, if anything? I have no idea. Uh, I think ultimately, and this is not an overnight thing, but I think ultimately it will come down to uh, conferences. And it'll come down to conferences very broadly. So I'm not just talking about one thing. I'm talking about overall, whether it be transfer portal or whether it be NIL or whether it be, you know, like um, anything you're complaining about right now, frankly, in the sport, it's not going to be an NCAA salvation. Uh, it's not going to be a Congress salvation. It's going to be the leagues themselves, the conferences themselves. They really have to get tough with their member institutions, look in the mirror and say, look, there's there's enough money on the table for everyone. There's a ton of opportunity on the table here for everyone. If we handle it right, the, be the, the biggest enemy we have is ourselves. And so we got to figure stuff out. And just because you don't have to agree to a thing here or there doesn't mean you don't agree to a thing here or there if it's for the greater good of the sport. But greater good of the sport, I think that's five words that I just said that you never hear talk about because no one's out for the greater good of the sport right now. It's all about self-interest. And I'm not blaming those folks because – that's that's kind of how it's had to be. I just hope that's not the way it is in the future. And I think the conference, the league office, that's probably where it starts and ends. Josh, along those lines, there are thousands of players in the transfer portal. I mean, thousands. It's crazy. That's not what the transfer portal was originally designed to do, right? I mean, are they going to make any changes to that? Well, so let's go back to what I just said. I, I talk about the conference and I think I think where we're headed ultimately is we're headed to a world where either outright employment status is granted to kids or something akin to that that is collectively bargained is granted to kids. And that sounds bad for, you know, the people who love amateur athletics and who love the way it has been. But I'm not sure it's the worst thing in the world. In fact, I think it may be better than what we have now. And the reason goes back to the question you just asked. How do you put guardrails on anything? Right now, you can't because no one's agreed to anything. But I think when when you collectively bargain and you look at the television money that's about to be pumped into the sport, if you say, let's say, play outside linebacker for the University of Florida and you're cut in on the media rights deal, I am requiring you, if you're going to get access to that, I'm requiring you, when you put your name on a scholarship to go to Florida, that is locking you in for a certain amount of time. And in other words, it's going to have guardrails on it to where you can't just go in the portal anytime you want to. You can't do that. Uh, there's give and take here. And if you want access to this huge revenue pie over here, then you're going to have to give us some guarantees as well. Because in the real world, when you bargain something, that's how it works. You get something in exchange for something. Uh, again, that's not an overnight thing, but I think ultimately that's where we're headed. You know, and I want to get to Florida and Florida State, but you piqued my interest. Like we're seeing it with DJU who's going on a visit to Florida State, he already went from Clemson to Oregon State, understanding why he's leaving Oregon State. They're about to be relegated to the Mountain West Conference. I mean, I get that, so that's maybe not the best example. But he's now transferring again, and I believe there was uh, some ruling that came down today that says, for now, there's no problem with players transferring twice 
to me, that's where the gray area starts. If you want to transfer once, okay. But if you're on three different teams in three different years, I think people will begin to have problems with that. Yeah, I'm one of them. I will say this, though. I've always been a proponent of a total exemption once your head coach leaves. If your head coach leaves a program, then I don't mind those kids being able to transfer. I also, therefore, don't mind when a new staff comes in, the scholarship limitations, the amount of kids they can take are a little bit more relaxed because it stands to reason they may be taking over a job where half the roster just left because the previous coach hid the exit door. So um, I think in a a 95% general sense, I do agree with you. And I think we're headed towards a world one day, maybe five months from now, maybe five years from now, where you don't see it quite as wide open. I, I think there's coming a time where we'll look back on the 2021 to 2024 or five era and say, wow, remember how crazy it was for a while? Luckily, we got that under control. Josh Pape of the Late Kick Pod, Late Kick Live. You also see him there at CBS Sports HQ and on 247sports.com. All right, Josh, let's bring it to our neck of the woods. Let's begin in Gainesville. Billy Napier will be granted a third year despite 11 and 14 the first two years on the job. Clearly, they have to fix a lot of things. He let some defensive coaches go. He's bringing in some new defensive hires, but they've lost an awful lot to the transfer portal. What's your thought on everything going on in Gainesville right now? Well, it's not an overnight fix. Uh, It wasn't when he took the job, an overnight fix. I think that it was kind of jarring to see still how undisciplined they were at times on the field this year. And the reason that's jarring is because that's not Billy Napier. Anyone who knows Billy Napier, who has observed his teams in the past, that's not a hallmark of a Napier team. That's not a hallmark of Napier as a man. And ideally, the program is a thumbprint of its head coach. And when those things don't match up, it means there's there's a disconnect between you and trying to implement your culture in a program. So whatever moves he makes, I mean, I, I think obviously there's been a lot of speculation about special teams and about how they divide up staff roles. You've got two offensive line coaches, for example. I don't think he's dumb or anything like that. I mean, if fans figured out the moves that need to be made, Billy Napier knows as well. It's just a lot easier said than done. And also, you know, how um, how open is he to that? And I'm not talking about what people think. I mean, let's let's cut him open. Let's get inside his mind. How open is he to that? Or does he view his way as being effective? It just needs more time or we didn't get the right bounces this year. We didn't have the right guys in the in the on the team this year. Um, that's look, this, this time of year is very, very pivotal for those sorts of things. And look, Josh, I said all season, I think Napier deserves at least three years on the job. I think that's only fair to give a guy three years. But I, that's my limit, right? I mean, if they don't show gradual improvement, they're 11 and 14. And I look at that schedule next year, good grief, man. They got three Power 5 non-conference games on top of a very hard SEC slate. You could argue it's probably the toughest schedule in the country. I mean, is Napier going to be on the hottest seat in America when 2024 begins? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think around the rest of the country. It's safe to say in the SEC he will be. And um, – you know, I've, I've thought for a while his his future was not tied to 2023 unless they went like two and ten. I thought his future was tied to the 2024 season and the 2024 recruiting class. And that's been in a state of flux right now. And I, I never I never I mean, I'm, I am 
plenty, plenty wise enough to just withhold judgment until the signing class is signed because that stuff changes by the hour. But, I mean, DJ Lagway, if he's held on to and a majority of that class is held on to and they go into spring and then summer and you've got that daunting schedule on the horizon, I think one of the good parts about that is no one will have 10 win expectations. Uh, but this year they didn't either. The over-under was five and a half and they still fell short. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's unfair at all. It is totally fair in the, in the transfer portal modern age to give a guy three years. And you cannot say you got screwed. You cannot say that you weren't given enough time. Three years is plenty enough time in today's college football. A couple of more for Josh Pate, Late Kick Live and the Late Kick Pod. He's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Josh, you mentioned giving the business, right? Well, Florida State fans still feel like they were given the business 10 days ago or I guess nine days ago. Your thoughts on that whole situation? And unfortunately for Florida State, they're likely to go down in history because when the playoff expands to 12 in 2024, we'll never see a scenario like that again where an undefeated Power 5 conference team is left out of the playoff. Yeah, I um, I think I've probably got the most convoluted stance on this out of anyone I've heard because I think Florida State got screwed, but I also think Alabama should have been in over them, which sounds like it makes no sense. Here's Here's where my mind's at. I've got my own separate way. I'm not a committee member. So I got my own separate way that I would decide the thing. And it would take a long time for me to spell that out. But bottom line is, based on the way I would approach it personally, I thought Bama should have been in over Florida State. But that's not how the committee should work. I freely admit my way is not the way we should choose teams in this sport. It would be a disaster if we used my way. Um, The committee's approach, if they actually follow the protocols they claim to, should have had Florida State in. And I think they moved the goalpost. I think they BS people when they said we're about putting the best teams in over the most deserving. They said that a week out from Selection Sunday. That is not the protocol that they've stuck to in the past. And so, you know, whether it was the Georgia TCU game last year that jarred them or whether it was the Jordan Travis injury this year that scared them away, whatever the case is, it's not how it should have worked if we're operating based on their stated procedures. So, I personally would have had Bama in, but I'm not the committee, and my criteria is not the committee. If that governing body, if that committee stuck to their procedures, FSU should have been in that thing, and they got screwed by being left out. You know, one of the problems of the playoff, and it's going to get even worse next year with the 12-teamer, here in our area, our four big teams that we cover are Florida, Miami, Florida State, and Georgia. And we got a game in South Florida in a couple weeks between two teams and the Bulldogs and the Seminoles that have a combined record of, what, 25-1, and one, right? And I'm not sure if anybody cares. Uh, and I, I don't know what to do about that in the world of college football. It's the reality of where we are. But that Georgia-Florida State game on paper looks terrific. But in reality, I, I think it's going to be just a shell of what it could have been. Yeah, it's a shame. And, look, I've got my own philosophies on that. I think when we brought the college football playoff to this sport, it, ha- it did a lot of good, but one of the unintended consequences was we sacrificed the quality and integrity of bowl season as a whole. But it's not the playoffs' fault necessarily. I think it's more the way the playoff was marketed and presented and promoted. And there was that whole mechanism, marketing mechanism for a long time, the who's in campaign. And that was all you had force fed down your throat from August to December is who's in. And it kind of led you to think that 
any play any game that didn't have playoff implications was second or third tier. And then we had phrases like meaningless game and meaningless bowl game kind of inserted into our lexicon. No one ever said that before. And those were adults saying that, by the way, not kids. Kids heard it. Players heard it. Players started to believe in the adults saying those things. And so they started opting out of bowl season. They, they viewed it as inconsequential because it was presented as inconsequential. And now folks want to ask, what do we do to save bowl season? You can't do anything more to save that than you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. Genie's out of the bottle now. So I don't know what radical steps people want to take to save bowl season, but until they figure something out, this is just the way it's going to be. And I hate it, by the way. Final moments, Josh Pate, Late Kick Pod, and Late Kick Live. All right, Josh, the four teams that did get into the playoff. We got Michigan and Alabama. You got Washington and Texas. Who do you like in the semifinals, and who do you ultimately think will raise the trophy at the end? I do not know where I'm going to go in the Sugar Bowl yet. I do lean Alabama in the Rose Bowl. I I was in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago, watched that game from field level. I've seen Michigan in person a couple of times from field level as well. I, I, I just convinced myself in that SEC title game, whichever one of those teams comes out of it, is my favorite in the playoff because I know both of them were banged up pretty bad. Uh, Georgia out wide and Alabama on the lines of scrimmage. And I, I said, and I still believe, whichever one of them makes it through Atlanta and gets three weeks to heal up will be a team that is shot out of a cannon come late December. And I think that'll be the case. Um, look, I, I know Michigan hasn't given up explosive plays all year, but Bama's gotten them all year, and they've gotten them because of that mobile threat at quarterback and a bunch of different pass catchers. They've had like 11 or 12 guys involved this year. So I – I, don't, I think the winner of Alabama-Michigan would probably be my lean to win it all, and right now I'd go Bama. Josh, as we wrap up, tell the good folks here in Jacksonville, the Late Kick Pod, Late Kick Live. I know you can watch it on YouTube. That's where I normally absorb it. But where can they find your program? Yeah, pretty much wherever you want to go. If you're, if you're on YouTube, Late Kick with Josh Pate. Got multiple live shows per week, a bunch of clips over there. And if you're a podcast type, Late Kick with Josh Pate on every platform imaginable. We basically build the show to meet you wherever you want to be met at. Josh, I tell you this every time we have you on. You do an absolutely terrific job. Congratulations on all your success with your show and everything going on. And we'll talk again soon, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it, brother. Merry Christmas. And thank you to Josh Pate of Late Kick Live, the Late Kick Pod, CBS Sports, HQ, 247sports.com. He's everywhere, and I mean it, man. Josh does an absolutely terrific job. He's one of the guys I go to for college football, and we certainly appreciate him taking time out for us here on Hacker After Dark. My big takeaway of the evening, well, it goes back to the Jacksonville Jaguars. This will be the seventh game at Everbank Stadium this year. The Jacksonville Jaguars are 2-4, and four, and they have been embarrassed in a couple of those games in losses to Houston and San Francisco. The defense, well, they've also been awful the last couple of weeks. This is very simple. There's not a lot of rocket science involved in this, all right? If you want to be considered among the best teams in the NFL, if you want to be considered among the elite of the NFL, which I know you, Jaguar fans, do, and I know the team does as well. You got to win home games and you got to stop people. And right now, the Jaguars aren't doing either one of those. When you don't win at home and you're not stopping anybody, i.e., Jake Browning or Joe Flacco, that's a problem. And look, if winning the AFC South 
is good enough for you and getting into the playoffs is good enough for you, that's fine. Because to me, that's where the Jaguars are headed. But if you want more, right, if you want more than just a division title, if you want to make some true noise in the NFL postseason, well, then that's got to start on Sunday. You got to win this game at home, and you got to be able to stop people. And you're going to get a great challenge with Lamar Jackson coming in here on Sunday night. This needs to be the get-right game for Jacksonville. This needs to be the show-me-something game for Jacksonville. Because if they lose this game, I still think they'll probably get in. They'll be backpedaling getting in, and I'm not sure how long they're going to last in the NFL playoffs. Well, that'll just about do it. What's been a very busy Wednesday night edition of Hacker After Dark and for Blue tonight on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. We certainly appreciate you guys hanging out with us. We got a lot of people to thank. Again, Josh Pate of the Late Kick Pod and Late Kick Live talking college football. Thank you to Matt Verderam of Sports Illustrated. Matt is one of my favorite guys to talk Jaguars with. Really enjoy his honesty, and he gave it to you straight earlier today, and we appreciate his candor. So Matt Verderam of SI, and back in hour number one, my guy Cecil Shorts, former wide receiver for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He's with us every week here on Hacker After Dark, and we certainly appreciate Cecil taking time out for us this evening. We will be back tomorrow night on a Thursday, and we will do it all over again beginning at 8 o'clock. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker, Ryan Green. And again, Jacksonville, thank you for spending part of your Wednesday evening with us right here on Hacker After Dark, on 1010XL, and on 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your Wednesday evening, and we will talk to you tomorrow night on a Thursday beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.